0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the We Belong Here podcast, powered by Civic Commons. I'm your host, Frank Nam, the project director for We Belong Here. Uh, once again, thank you to the big phony for uh, really letting us use his music uh, through the intro and outro for these podcasts. Uh, always uh, love hearing that song. And uh, you can always check out his SoundCloud link in our uh, page. So today we have our second episode of a really amazing um, partnership with the Discovery Center at the Gates Foundation. And they are doing this four-month series called "In Community We Flourish." So each uh, month they will have they had a different um, theme, and this month's theme was "We All Count." It's the idea of like the census. And today we actually have two guests who are on the show, um, the 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 In Community We Flourish show, joining us for this extended conversation on the podcast. So you know, I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So let's have a. Uh, Kamal, why don't you start?
1: My name is Kamau. I'm the director of the Washington Census Alliance, a coalition of over 90 organizations of color around the state. Uh, who have been working together on ensuring there's a complete count of the census to ensure communities of color have fair representation and funding. Um, we have a coordinating committee that helped found the Census Alliance um, and part of the reason I'm so excited to, to join you today is um, we also have Susan from the Illahi Fund um, who's uh, on our board and uh, one of the founders of uh, Washington Census Alliance.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm, wonderful. Susan, tell us about you.
2: Okay, hello everybody. This is Susan Balbus. Um, I uh, My people come from the Cherokee and the Yaqui nations as well as from different parts of Europe, um, d- different uh, ancestors. Um, I'm the founder and executive director of Na'a Ilahi Fund, which means Mother Earth in the Chinook jargon language of the Pacific Northwest. And uh, our mission is to support and promote the leadership of indigenous women and girls in the ongoing regeneration of indigenous communities. And that uh, begins with increased civic participation. And that was why we decided to engage with um, the models that uh, Washington Census Alliance were um, kind of coming up with is the most effective ways to increase the count of our quote-unquote, hard-to-count communities. So, thank you. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. thank you.
0: Thank you for mm-hmm. both of you, for um not just yourselves, obviously, but the organizations you work with that do this work, Um and, you know, beyond the census itself as well for the Naa Fund. So, you know, thinking about the census, uh, we, as usual, we always do a check-in question for this podcast. Um, the census is about being counted. Being counted weaves in feelings of inclusion, belonging uh, and actualization. So I would love for both of you to vote. I would love for both of you to tell us a time when you felt like you were counted and however you would describe that, what were the factors that helped you make, uh, helped you feel this way? And so we'll go in reverse order. Susan, why don't you start?
2: Okay, well, I don't want this to sound hokey but it was actually when I filled out the census. And the reason is because, you know, I was raised in a family um, that voted, that believed in democracy and really um, that our voice matters, that we count. And and so I hadn't really thought about it. I've always filled out the census report, self-reported, but this was the first time that I was so engaged in it. And knew so much about it and why it was important and had spent so much time making the case to Native communities, leaders on why they need to report on the census that so much belong, you know, begins with the census count in this country. Um, and how data is important in our lives. Um, and also I have done a little bit of genealogical, uh, research. And so I envisioned you know, folks down the line, looking back and reading this and wondering about me and who I was, you know, because it's 70 years, I believe, until the data is released. And I thought, wow, okay, I'll be way long gone. And, you know, there will be, um, anyway, so I just, it just gave me a really, uh, a wonderful sense, uh, of belonging and, uh, and really participating in you know sharing you know about myself that people can look back and 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 you know gather a little bit of data about our family so yeah
0: i like that i like that idea of like the census is really you putting your own time capsule into the into the the the, the world and i didn't actually know that the data gets released 70 years after so that's You know, I think this is the year where I'm learning. I think where a lot of us are learning more and more things about the census. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, Kamal.
1: Yeah, that was um, such an amazing anecdote because my experience is if uh, Susan's is one of, you know, this long lineage of um, people who've uh, always been here before, you know, any of these structures were around. Mine is of um, new people who are uh, migrating in and uh, arriving for the first time and finding um, their place. I think the last time I felt really counted in, it was probably this summer, uh, was really something else. I think the summer of 2020 of twenty twenty is really going to go, go down, especially because I live in Capitol Hill. And... A few weeks ago, sort of at the height of, um, the occupation that was happening at, uh, CHOP, um, which for people who don't know is the, uh, Capitol Hill, um, occupied protest, um, There had been just weeks and weeks of Seattle PD coming down and so many protests and so much tear gas that even if you were in your apartment, you could get like wafts of um, the remnants of, of the tear gas. And what happened after a few days was there was this big occupation a couple blocks away from where my bedroom is and um i had friends that were visiting from uh spokane so we had each quarantined um our our necessary uh two weeks and we're like okay good we can hang out for a weekend and they had come over to see what was uh happening this was after the big black lives matter uh, mural on kind of like 12th and union um had been made So i go out there and it's kind of like a saturday morning you know normally this would have been brunch and instead it's you know getting um your your coffee handed to you and gloves and spraying turmeric and we're walking down towards the mural and i was kind of showing them around hey here's the mural here's this this is where the clash happened and telling the the story of what was going on and there was music blaring at like 11 a.m and i heard one of the songs was um and like was one that i I was not expecting to hear which was uh the song called uh zima nice by this like kenyan rapper chris Kaga. and i like paused for a second because i had my airpods in i was like there's no way there's no way who would possibly be listening to this like very niche um song um that, like, only, you know, I assume, only, like, only Kenji's listened to. Instead, it was just like, there's some person who's just DJing there, um, kind of, like, celebrating the occupation, the fact that, you know, the, precinct had been sort of left and so it was kind of this little occupied area of South Carolina a lot of kids and a big kind of like almost old 60s feel and the idea to hear like Swahili like rap lyrics in the background of this big uh, occupation that had come in the wake of you know weeks of uprisings around the country and just months before um, the last time I was ever in a big space together um, partially was with uh, Susan and a few others, uh, hundreds of others that from the Washington Census Lines convening. And it felt like, well, like, oh, like, you know, this is kind of um, a lot of what America's about is uh, a lot of protesting, a lot of trying to um, find your place and then uh, your role in um, creating justice where there was injustice. And um, that was also joyful and kind of beautiful uh, between the mural and the music. Um, and I think that's the last time I felt very... Uh, counted in especially because you know I didn't there was no ask it was just kind of happened to be you know someone thought that song was cool was playing it at the time and it um made me feel like oh this is my neighborhood this is this is cool
0: that is very cool I mean you know for me even when I hear um you know so I'm I'm, I also immigrated I'm new to this country Uh, we immigrated when I was three and even now with the popularity of K-pop, right? So K-pop is, is like worldwide phenomenon and K-pop stands are creating their own, I think, uh, record of like the, the activism that they're doing, which which is really fascinating. But even hearing like Korean music like on people's headphones or on like the light rail uh, before COVID is just like, wait, I don't... That's so cool. Like so interesting that like the cultures from where we came from have inundated in, 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 like the, the places we are. And for you to hear that music in Cap Hill during chop. Um, with that feeling of, like, people there and a celebration, but also the struggle and the protest, that's really, really neat. It kind of creates this idea of, like, Seattle being more of, like, a cosmopolitan, like, city and place.
1: And it really changed, like, the idea of, like, home, right? Because there's some of those signals that you'll, like, you'll get a smell or a sound or a feeling, and that's, like, feeling that's like home. And I think so many of us have been trained to think of that as geography, Mm -hmm. and um i think a lot of us are finding in the pandemic when you're stuck literally at your home that there's many other places and in fact there's all these other places that you felt at home at that weren't your literal place where you live yeah susan what do you um make of that and this like idea of home that's changed a little bit during quarantine
2: oh i don't know i don't know i think we just keep on doing what we're doing right we just keep on organizing and going toward the light you know to try to lead us out of this right the best that we can Um, yeah Mm.
0: it's um it's interesting like the work that you are both doing and are participating in in terms of the census and building this like multiracial like movement, right. Of trusted advisors and trusted connections who are able to go into the communities that they belong to and talk about the senses and bring this, um, you know, something that seems kind of like this big government thing, uh, into a much more humane and uh, impactful light. Like why, why should we care? Why should we, we be counted and why shouldn't we fear someone knocking on our door, etc. Um, and that's you know when you say go to the light, Susan. I think a lot about like built like this multi-racial, cultural, ethnic coalition of people from different lived experiences and the commonalities that we have. But um, and it's hard to do that work, right? To bring people together from different backgrounds and different uh, experiences. But if anything, I I think the what the pandemic has done is is forced us to flex our community muscles in a way we normally don't have to because we kind of like have our circles of friends and community and we just do the things that we always do and this has upended that in a big way I mean it literally upended you Susan you moved to would be right so you're in a I did you're literally on an (laughs) island but you're also connecting in a way I'm sure that's different than you have before so yeah I think it's really powerful to think about to think about it this way as well and to hopefully not lose all the hope (laughs) that we have um, because there's so many things like you said that vying for attention in a really disruptive way too yeah Kamal, you talked a little bit about your um, your your background and where you're from. Uh, we're kind of going to pitch you over to the next part of this uh, pro- uh, podcast, which is to talk a little bit about yourself. So, I'm sure Susan and I would love to hear more about you. Like, tell us a little bit about you.
1: That I, yeah, um, I'd love to share. I think this is the we're like right around the 19th. Year, uh, my family and I have lived in the United States. We immigrated in two thousand and one, um, in the fall of two thousand and one. So it's wild period uh, to to be immigrating. I was six years old. My dad had came over um, as like kind of as like post study after seminary. He was a priest, and he's coming over to do um, uh, kind of cler- clerical work in healthcare and we soon followed a couple months later and we landed in Irmo, South Carolina. Irmo is this like tiny uh, town uh, outside of um, uh, Columbia, South Carolina. So it's, it's, it's a rural town. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, when you're a kid, maybe like six years old or so, um, you don't have all the context. And one thing I don't think most people understand is how big, uh, media is as a cultural um, uh, uh... Sort of phenomenon from the U.S. out to the world. It's one of the largest exports is uh, Hollywood, and so you come in as a kid thinking, okay, I'm going to get to the U.S. and it's going to be like the Cosby's or like the Full House or whatever. And you land in a small town, South Carolina, and you're like, what gives? You know, this is this is we had this back back home. Um, you know, a couple houses, you know, a couple schools, uh, lots of lots of arid land. Um, and we lived there for a year. Lived in St. Louis, um, near uh Floreson, almost right adjacent to Ferguson. Uh, um it's now become infamous. We used to bike through that neighborhood all the time. Um, and then lived in Charlotte and eventually landed in the Pacific Northwest in Tacoma in two thousand nine. And I think for um us, there were, like, two main experiences. One was uh, a couple years after we immigrated, um, our visas expired, my mom won a green card, but the green card became invalidated because um, our father's visa was expiring. And those things ended up being attached. There was a clerical error that never got resolved in between immigrating pre-2000, like, in 2001, when there was, like, the Immigration Naturalization Services Agency. And then everything getting adjusted through the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. So this clerical error meant, you know, our visas expired and most people don't know, but there's no way to really adjudicate that. There's no like, hey, this clerical error went wrong. After your visas like a- expired, you have to leave the country. Maybe you never get to come back, um, or you stay and you be undocumented. And that's what my parents did. And so when came to when we arrived in Washington State, um Beginning of high school after I graduated, got involved in the immigrant rights movement, um, helped co-found this organization called Washington Dream Coalition that had passed, um, that had come from the Washington Dream Act Coalition that passed the Washington State Dream Act to give equal access to all students, regardless of status, um, to state financial aid for college, and uh, ended up being, you know, uh, housed and incubated inside of Latino Community Fund, which is where I find myself uh, today um, leading the Washington Census Alliance, which is a fiscally sponsored project of um, Latino Community Fund. And, you know, out of that whole experience, you know, mentioning that I learned two things. One was that that whole experience was not new. And, you know, every new generation of, of immigrants has always struggled to find its way and, and find its place in America going way back to you know you can read Frederick Douglass' uh, speech Composite Nation and in there he's making the case um, not just of abolition but against the Chinese Exclusion Act because he saw that as um, you know against what the values and promise of America was even though it wasn't the case and it wasn't the case at the time but it should have been, and um, was one of the foremost uh, immigrant rights leaders uh, of the country. And the second was just, as African immigrants, you come to the country with not a different sense of race than most people might, because if you're in Africa, there's no need to be Black in Africa. That's that's not a category that is so at the forefront of people's minds the way it is here. And I remember watching this process of my parents when they did the census in 2010 and uh, as an immigrant kid I I did the practice of, you know, you go get the mail and you're like, you're doing some of these things for your parents and um, they would uh, write in, sort of like you know, um, our ethnicity or, you know so not just like Kenyan, but like Kikuyu or, or something like that and now, after 20 years, I think they had so many racialized experiences that they really like do not just see themselves as Black, but they understand what that means, that this is, like, the way the country views you, and not just that that's, like, a negative thing, although most of the racialized experience tend to be negative, but that part of being an African immigrant in the U.S. is also understanding, like, oh, like, now, because of the injustice you face, being, you know, um, coded as Black, it's, like, part of your job to also, like, pick up where other people have left off. And... Be involved in the, you know, instantiation of racial justice in uh, in America, and I think that's also like something we talk so much about with um, not Elahi Fund and others about how the census today is great data to make sure that we know where environmental racism is happening by knowing what the racial population of a certain place is, but it began with excluding. Um, uh, African-Americans and black people by counting them as three-fifths. The census clause is the only place in the Constitution that actually acknowledges slavery was taking place at the time. And it was also used to, um, you know, undergird the forced removal of Native people from um, their lands because the census clause in the Constitution also included excluding, you know, quote-unquote Indians not taxed. And there's just this really important project like you're talking about of um not letting not letting us be defined by where those things started, but where we are now, and this idea of everybody being included and everybody being counted in
0: yeah, that's Susan, do you have any I mean I think you should tell your story, but I'm sure you have some things to say uh, to the things that Kamau just shared.
2: Well, I didn't know some of those things about Kamau. That's very cool. That's the beauty of this podcast. Even
0: people that know and work well together can actually hear each other's stories in more, uh, yeah. more detail.
2: Right. Wow. Oh. Yeah. South Carolina. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine what it was like for a little guy six years old coming from Kenya. My history uh, is very different. Very, very different. Of course. Um, my father moved us to the Pacific Northwest uh, when I was a little kid Uh from California. And uh, we got to California via Oklahoma, both sides of my family. Um, my mother's side is uh mixed blood Cherokee from they were in Oklahoma, only about two generations. And uh, by way of Arkansas and then the Southeast, right? Where the Cherokee Nation is from. And then immigrants came in from, you know, different places. Um, And then my dad's side of the family, uh, my grandfather came from Spain and during the Spanish Civil War, or just before the Spanish Civil War, and then ended up in Mexico and met my Yaqui grandmother uh, when she was 14. And they uh, they got, they went to Oklahoma cause that was Indian country then, right back in the early 20th century, that was Indian country. So that's where they went. And then during the Dust Bowl in the 1930s is when both sides of my family immigrated to, um, California, the central Valley of California. Um, and so that's where I was born and that's where my family is today. Most of my family. I come from a really large family, like nine kids in my mom's family and sixteen in my dad's family. Wow. Sixteen I got like literally a hundred and something cousins. Like literally. I really do. Um and um so we were there in the bay area or we moved to the bay area when i was pretty young and then up to the northwest and i've been here ever since boise portland up in the skagit county um island county and seattle and um yeah um i think what and i want to say what uh, being a mixed very mixed uh cultural and uh person you know, I grew up with some kind of, um, confusion about where these traditions came from, right? Like, you know, I go around native people and say, oh yeah, there's my native traditions and then go around Latinos. Oh, that's my, you know, my grandma and my grandpa, for sure. We have a lot of those traditions, upbringings and, and values and, um, and then some European as well. And a lot of, you know, like, weird internal internalized racism and oppressions in my family as well when you have a big family you find you have room for just about everything right so we're all over the place in the political spectrum and uh you know like who people have married and uh, i have an interesting family you could say that but i think the biggest influence um were the women in my family for sure my grandmothers were um, of course hard workers because they had so many kids and and um but you know taught me so much about food and medicines and plants and um, you know and how to take care of people and how to be in service to your community and so i really credit them with um kind of my backbone right that's what really brought me into this into this work um, was really giving back, you know, uh, that's what drives me giving back and finding innovative solutions to issues in community. Cause we all have issues, right? That's part of being human is overcoming challenges. And um, so I think that, you know, and I studied history in graduate school and I kind of got really into like the roots of racism in this country from europe and how they evolved and came here and with who and and so um i could talk about that forever but we don't have forever so um but that that really fed i think my passions as well because i've always had this kind of burning desire in my heart for justice right that came from my family as well and So, you know, the biggest injustice that I've, you know, of course, experienced in my life is um, what's happened to the indigenous people of the Americas. It's, you know, the biggest Holocaust um, that we know of, just absolutely horrendous. And, you know, as I started working in the native community as a young person, You know, I kind of saw this, um, you know, a lot of need for healing, which is, of course, very understandable. There's been a lot of trauma and, you know, dispossession of lands and relatives and loss of a certain amount of identity. And um, but these you know kind of trying to trying to use these european models of healing with indigenous people uh yeah right not working so well right so you know i go to my teachings and then things i've learned along the way right is that um our first teacher is mother earth and so go back to Mother Earth, go back to the abundance, go back to um, healing and connecting with the land and the things that make us indigenous. So that is what we try to do at Naile Fund is really provide that space and resources for uh, women who are the backbone of our communities to really be able to dream and, cause they know, they know, they're brilliant and they know what needs to happen, right, for us to, build regenerative economies and go back to go back to that but in a 21st century context right so yeah we've got like techie girls and all kinds of cool stuff going on with the kids right but but also um yeah all kinds of um cool initiatives so um that's kind of my story um you know i've got three children three grandchildren and uh you know and uh love the northwest. I'd never want to live in Oklahoma. Oh, did I say that? Whoops, yeah, I said, Yeah. <laughs> uh where the Cherokee Nation is. Oh, it is hot and muggy there. I love the Northwest. I love the coolness and the Yeah. Yeah, yeah
0: no, I, lo- I love mm-hmm. it here too. It's uh mm-hmm. growing up in Korea where, you know, I was mm-hmm. only three when we left, so I don't but I've been back enough that I know it's incredibly humid in the summers and there's monsoon season growing up on the east coast in new york like the humid summers i i will not trade in a humid summer ever again for what we have here <laughs> right? I'll, I'll pay the price of the gloom uh, in the winter uh, for these summers which are just incredibly lovely
1: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. oh yeah. yeah i don't think i i would trade uh, our weather for uh, south carolina uh, <laughs> oh, uh yeah. either um maybe just bring over bring over some of the some of the southern food um mm-hmm. up here but that a lot of that is is happening already
0: It's starting to happen for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of barbecue here in Seattle way more in the last 10 years than before that. Something you said Susan around like um yeah, I think both of you said I you know I think about my own history, right? And so I think something that Kamau you said was um how your parents when they came here coming from Africa, right? From coming from Kenya, that black wasn't like, to think about them, uh, think about themselves as racialized is not a thing. Coming from Korea, I'm sure my parents felt the same, coming from a very homogenous country. And the way they entered this country, you know, I know, and, there, you know, a lot of Korean Americans are actually, if you don't know, are very religious, and a lot of them are, are in the Protestant or Catholic uh, faiths. And so they do a lot of, like, proselytizing. They're, like, very devout. My mom, like, went to early morning prayer all the time. She was very devout. And the, and because of that, they also voted, my parents voted Republican for a long time, right? And I remember in, uh, when Obama first ran for president, you know, I talked to her after the election and I was like, Oh, who'd you vote for? And she's like, Obama. And I was like,
2: Oh, great.
0: Wh- why? Why'd you decide to vote for Obama? Like, you know, like it's the Democrat. <laughs> and she's basically said, like, I don't think the other person cares about people that look like, like, look, look like us. And I was like, wow, mm-hmm. so intuitive. Like, you know, like. But it took the time to be here, right? To go through the racialized identities that you know, like like Kamal you said, like the experiences we have as racialized people usually are not great. Um, but there's some like really powerful things that connect us and I that I love about being Asian American and being API. But I think my parents knew enough and got enough feedback from those around her to know that, you know, there's something very different about the way she's treated. Right. And so that's I think it's interesting to think about that as well and how our identities like uh, evolve or how we're how are perceived evolves and how we how we perceive how we are perceived evolves talk about meta um but yeah yeah
1: that's exactly right i always felt and it's become a very popular notion now to talk about identity in the way you know one identifies because that's so important kind of interpersonal reac- um interactions and how we show up for each other but the thing that really clicked for me is um reading this book, Racecraft, and um, by two um, black women sisters, I believe they're professors in Columbia. And they actually show, you know, it actually functions in the reverse, that what's happening is institutions are identifying you. And so for example, like there might be like a long time, especially if you're an immigrant, where um, you don't adopt, a racial identity because you've never had to um, back home and you come here but you have a set of experiences that show like oh no the institutions see you a certain way you know whether that's like security at a store vice principals at your schools your boss at work when you're trying to rent or buy a home and then that's actually when you're like oh okay what do i do with these sets of experiences that aren't going to to change um and understand that is really important because also um lets us know that there's ways to undo that institutional racism um that you know it's not enough for there to be it's not possible for for that to be fixed through sort of a race blind way the institutions have to view um people with the history of the experiences those institutions have created for them and then and then you know engineer ways to undo that rather than to like cut a clean slate it's funny you bring up the 2008 election one thing i remember and um as a kid and uh my mother, uh, if she was, she might hate the story. But at the beginning, my mom was also very evangelical. It's like a huge thing for a lot of immigrants who immigrate to like the Anglophone world, right? Australia, UK, um, US. And my mom was like a big Mike Huckabee fan because um, you know she's like working class um, woman. So Does didn't pay a lot of attention to politics, but like would have the news playing in the background and one thing that uh, I just like about mike huckby is he just kind of like spoke the language of um very like christian and evangelical people you know faith and and all that but uh over the years like that's not at all where like her politics are my parents don't vote because they're immigrants they're undocumented but they follow politics and they kind of you know, have people that they think are, are fighting for them. And something that I saw is like now, you know, my mom was like a big Bernie person in twenty sixteen, twenty twenty. Um, I think also because she kind of related a little bit to like the immigrant story of um Jewish people in America and and that sort of thing, but also because, you know, uh, she works like a like a most um African immigrants they work in healthcare You know they're making wages and those things kind of really speak to them but it shows i think the where those two those two stories between our um parents dovetail is this um experience about like what is the polity about and before you can talk to people about issues they have to know like is there a place for them inside of your coalition and it becomes very clear to immigrants very quickly which coalition is hostile to them and which one is open to them, which one is um, trying to, you know, just kind of prop them up and which one is actually fighting for their civil and economic rights. Um, And I think we saw that like particularly in the census as as the citizenship question came up, that that was not a surprise to people. And one of the biggest things we had to overcome was, letting people know that they're right to be concerned about the census and they're right to kind of say like, Hey, you know, this administration doesn't seem to be um, the best for uh, communities like mine. And given that there's this whole Supreme court case going on, I don't know if I'm going to do it. And I actually had to let them know like, you're right. And it's for a reason. And there's definitely a concerted force and, groups and interests that don't want everybody to be included in our democracy or our economy and they're trying to do that by scaring away from you not getting counted. And the way to be defined is actually to both um, not so into that fear but I think also like a big message that resonated not just to immigrants but like in Indian country was to be visible and like common connection we saw a lot in our coalition and the Washington Census Alliance is the stories resonated with each other whether it was you know much of Indian country feeling erased because it's sometimes difficult for you to identify um the tribe you're a part of make sure that you're counted and the ways that uh immigrants and undocumented immigrants in particular also felt invisibilized in kind of a very different but um analogous way that they could kind of like see each other commonality and be part of this coalition to make sure that everyone was counted. And um, you know, the other big disparity we saw a lot was like these common where you'd have urban areas that are very working class poor and they don't have like a lot of broadband, right? If you're in a trailer park in Lakewood, Washington, it's very difficult for you to get your mail. The mail you're getting is not so friendly, right? It's overdue bills, um, and maybe, like, uh, your, your, your brother's been, like, um, uh, misbehaving like a worn out for them. So you're not checking that mail and you're not, you know, very eager to give the government your information. But if you're in a suburb in Sammamish, um, in a big six bedroom house with a very clear mailbox, really easy for you to get counted. And at the same time, if you're, you know, in central Washington and maybe you're um, up in Okanagan County where there's the Spokane tribe, there's the Colville, um, you know, uh, Comcast and these other big broadband companies haven't done a great job of investing in the infrastructure for you to be able to have great broadband and uh, complete things like the census online and the federal government. And our political establishment hasn't done a great job of including you in the democracy and the economy in general in a way that uh, allows for you to get your mail really easily and for you to have access to resources really easily. And so there's this through uh, thread that we've we've seen um, a lot uh, through our work.
0: Yeah. So I guess maybe I can pivot to the next portion of our Conversation, which is really like, what is something that you are working on? And I, I know <laughs> in the census, September 30th, there's a date out there for uh, it to close. So it could definitely be census related. It could be something even like a side project or uh, a different thing that you are working on. But yeah, come on, why don't you uh, start and then we'll have Susan wrap up. Um, but tell us something you're working on.
1: Yeah, one of the big things is um, as the census gets ready to wrap up on September 30th, is thinking about where do we go from here? How do we uh, take this multiracial coalition that we've built and um, make sure that the complete count that we hopefully get actually materializes into uh, communities that feel like they're fully funded and included in an economy that works for everyone? and a democracy that uh, counts everyone in. And so um, much of that has started with thinking about redistricting, thinking about immigrant rights and criminal justice reform, and um, many of our members uh, starting um, smaller coalitions to work on those projects. And hopefully um, some of that will will take place uh soon. We had like a launch event for a redistricting letter to try and diversify the commission um as well as make sure that district boundaries um were just. Uh our immigrant rights organizations um recently secured a 40 million dollar fund for COVID-19 relief to undocumented immigrants and and other immigrants that didn't qualify for the stimulus check that many people got in the spring. And um, our Black Lives members just recently launched uh, WashingtonForBlackLives.org to make sure that, you know, the funding that comes through uh, federal grants from a complete count and everybody being included in doesn't just get um, swallowed up by police departments that uh, have not historically valued the public safety of everyone. And so those are a couple of things that um, we're excited for that are coming up.
0: Yeah, if you please uh, share those uh, links um, after the, the podcast and we'll put them in our description so that uh, all the folks uh, listening can access that. And I think what you said also reminds me of this like, uh case study I heard recently in, I think it was Houston, where the community foundation there had um, put together uh, funding and uh, organizational structure for all the uh, different race, ethnicity-led coalitions to come together to talk about, like, hey, if you actually were all in the same room, what would you want to work on? What would you want to do? And what they did was actually, and this is, I think, before 2016, is they, t- they talked about get out the vote. Like, how do we get our communities to vote? And I heard and, you know, maybe if you want you to know about this more than I do, you can chime in. But I heard that their their, their efforts were so successful that they had flipped the majority of like the court, uh, the judges in the, the, the area and like the, the legislature in their area to go from red to blue. Um, and so there's this really like and then after that, they're like, what do we do with this? Like, this is obviously when we join forces and we work together, we can do so much. So it's, it's kind of, it's kind of exciting to be like, Hey, we've done this great work. We've done all the work to put us together. What else can we do? And you're already working on these great things. So that's really exciting. Um, Susan, so tell us a little bit about, uh, what you are working on. We would love to hear how, uh, we can support you, be it the two of us. And I think you are, <laughs> you are being supported by Kamau's organization, but maybe the listeners can also support in some way.
2: In March, we launched our Native Community Crisis Response Fund, and um, uh, Seattle Foundation was an early donor there. Um, lots of folks now, now we have like hundreds of donors. Thank you so much. Thanks to All in Washington campaign, and um, so we kind of were like, we didn't know how much money we were going to raise, and we didn't know what to do. Um, we were afraid to like put out a request for proposals, right? In this crazy times. Um, So we talked to community partners, and uh, we kind of tried to assess where the greatest needs are. And um, so we ended up um, resourcing the best we could. um, Domestic violence programs, I think, across Mm. the boards, unfortunately, are seeing an uptick due to the quarantine situation um and we had heard that they were out of their crisis funds so a lot of uh a lot of our small grants went to those programs tribal communities um and then uh the other area was food food security and we already work in food so that was a natural fit for us so we put our uh brilliant staff to work and we put together what we call our indigenous food bundles So we are uh, supporting native farms and small businesses, purchasing items from them. We have women making masks and protective gear. Um, We've put in like kids activities and things. And so we made these beautiful like bundles, we call them, you know, indigenous food and health bundles for families. And we've distributed them all over the state and beyond. And it's been very, very, very successful. But, you know, um, and I think that they were very well received. And uh, so we started getting calls from folks. What'd you do? How'd you do that? We want to do that. So now we're providing technical assistance. So then, we, then we've then we been thinking about, okay, so what does a just recovery look like? Like, you know, how are we going to like look at this long term? Because, you know, COVID shined a light on you know the disparities in uh lots of communities right that were there before and then COVID has just exacerbated the situation right it was v- really dire um and so we started um including uh container gardens with like vegetable plants and things and then we started building uh gardens for folks and so now um we are building a network or kind of drawing on a network that already exists of uh, tribal community gardens and families and things that grow food and the traditional plant gatherers and medicine folks um, fisher people bringing them all together and kind of developing long-term a native food system for the future where uh we'll we will increase self-determination um food security and food sovereignty. So that the health disparities also that have uh, come about in recent decades with native people veering from traditional diets has brought a lot of health problems. Um, So like we're just hitting lots and lots of of areas with with the food work. So, um, and we're launching now a uh, climate justice cohort. And so we are, uh, embarking on that, uh, later in September. Um, we have, uh, folks coming from, well, that's another thing about COVID too, is it's moved everything online. So we're much more inclusive about who can be involved in our programming. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we've been doing a lot of, uh, small grants, but the cohort is going to be, kind of increasing, doing skill sharing and increasing education around like, how do we build a regenerative economy, right? How do we go back there? What do we have to do? We've got to change the systems that are polluting, the systems that are extracting and go back to regeneration. And what does that look like? So we're kind of co-creating that with community leaders, uh, bringing in our quote unquote experts that we know and then co-creating together what that looks like. Developing projects in tribal communities and then resourcing them and funding them for the long term, and um, that's kind of one of the cool things we're doing right now. Yeah, I like
0: that you said it's one of the cool things. I think you named like five mm-hmm. things that you're doing right now. So yeah, uh, it seems we're like you all are crew. busy. Yeah, yeah, we're a
2: busy crew. Yeah,
0: from domestic violence uh, support, mm-hmm. uh, supporting uh, mm-hmm. people, and especially now when they can't, people can't get away. Right. right. And that's things have spiked, obviously, there, fortunately. Mm-hmm. But food, food access. And I love this idea of like the, I think, what did you call it? The, the, the indigenous food bundles, baskets? bundles, bundles. Oh, we bundles. Call. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, and then to, yeah, I just, it's fascinating. Like the, all the things that you're doing and the mm-hmm. projects. Um, if people want more information, they can go onto your website mm-hmm. and, and hear more about these things, I'm sure.
2: Yeah. org. Cool.
0: Well, thank you both for sharing so much. Is there any, I would love to give you both any time if you want to have any closing thoughts uh, before you sign off. But, uh, I think there's so much one that we, I think learned about each other and thank you for sharing uh, very vulnerably, and very honestly about yourselves, uh, but also with the work you're doing and how, and also mm-hmm. talking about, about the senses more too. And mm-hmm. so is there anything you want to close with uh, for either mm-hmm. of you?
2: Um, I just want to say that, you know, um, yes, it's very difficult times we're in, right? We've got all kinds of, you know, tensions and this crazy national election happening and local elections. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, so much is showing itself right now. It's 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 a difficult time to be engaged in community, but it's also a really good time, right? I feel most of the time, Not all the time, but most of the time. um, I'm pretty hopeful that, um, you know, we are making these connections with each other, like working with the Census Alliance and working with uh, other communities where we have so much in common, way more in common than we have, right? Differences, a lot in common and coming together and really, um, you know, building hope. And I just think it's so important right now that we stay focused on that um, because, you know, we still have abundance on our planet, right? We still do. We haven't gotten to that point yet. Some might argue that we have, but I think we're not quite there. And so I have a lot of hope that um, we are going to figure it out together. Mm-hmm. right? I feel a lot of openness right now that didn't exist a little bit ago, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Especially with like mainstream culture, really understanding now, cause it's in your face about how, you know, institutional racism has really shaped this country and how it's, uh, you know, caused a lot of harm to a lot of people. And it doesn't have to be that way. And we can change it. Mm-hmm. Cause that's what we do.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And that scarcity model that people push is such a big reason why we have so much in, inequity, right? Because if you think yeah. for someone else to have more, then that means they're gonna, you're going to take away from me. Exactly. And it's like this terrible idea that, you know, like you said, abundance. There is there is no need for scarcity models and mindsets. Mm-mm. Like there is enough. And we just have to be good about stewarding that with
2: each other. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Frank.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, what Susan touched on is so, so good. There are so many gems in there about going back to a regenerative uh, economic model about the kind of like hope there is for organizing the future in this moment um, yeah just a, a, a lot there and I think you know my parting thoughts would be on um, here locally in, in in Washington State and how we can start we live in a state where um, there's not a lot of representation of communities of color. We don't have a multiracial democracy, um, really. Here, we're we're starting to for the first time. People of color are 30 percent of the state. Only about 15 or 16 percent of our legislature in the um, at the county level. There's just one um, county commissioner or council member not including executives of color. Uh, Grimai Zalahai is is it Um, for 39 counties, over 130 positions. There's only one Native leader in our legislature now. And there's a lot of work we need to do to elect leaders that don't just um, reflect the gender and racial diversity of our communities, but also the priorities, the things that Susan was talking about, about... um, an economy, uh, and an environment and, um, way of life that is guaranteeing dignity to, to everyone that calls that place home. Um, and it's really possible. There's, there's nothing that prevents us from, from doing that work, electing those leaders. And also from just understanding that, you know, another great point that Susan brought up and you did too about, um, the way we fixed our economic uh, problems or didn't really fix them in the last recession, people have this idea that there's scarcity just because of the budget numbers that come out of Olympia. But that's because you know we, we have such an upside down tax code and revenue, we're not able to see that Washington State on its own has an economy the size of uh, many of um, the social democracy countries in Europe, Denmark, Finland. And yet like we don't have the kind of care and justice that those economies provide for the people. And there's nothing that stops us from having that right here in our state. It's not a monetary currency problem. Those countries are on the Euro, just like Washington state doesn't have its own currency problem. It's not a you know, problem of what well, companies might leave or decide they don't want to stay. You know, if you're um Spotify um in, in Switzerland, you really don't like the high taxes, there's nothing that stops them from moving to France just like any, you know, Zillow or Microsoft or whoever else. Mm-hmm. And it just takes a real will and people coming together to say this is what a regenerative just economy looks like for everyone. This is what a um, democracy that works for everyone looks like. We deserve it. And we don't just need to demand it, but make sure that it materializes um, in our lifetimes. So I'm excited for this podcast and all the people that are doing um, the work to push us forward in that direction.
0: I think uh, the, the um, pronoun that you, you used, we, a lot. I mean, that, I think that's the key, right? Like, if we can see ourselves as we and not just yes. you or me, right? And that's something that I think this country struggled with in terms of our mythos around individualism. And I've said this on this podcast many times. So I'm sure my listeners are like, Oh, he's going to talk about individualism again. I'm not, I'm, gonna go, I'm not going to go into detail, <laughs> <laughs> but you all know the more we focus on the we, the, the more the solutions mm-hmm. we'll have and the more uh, bright future we have and the more less scarcity we'll have. And, uh, you two are definitely, um, folks who are working on the Wii, and i appreciate you both for doing the work you have done and the work you will do and i'm excited about where this will all go together and so i appreciate you all Um, for the listeners thank you for listening Uh, if you like this uh, episode please subscribe Uh, and as always uh, for now uh, stay safe and remember that we belong here thanks everyone